0: I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the jazz session with our dad, Jason Crane.
1: Lesson one Basic Hip.
2: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 427 for December 2nd, 2013. On today's show, my guest is Jeff Letterer. A quick note about the show schedule. It has been coming out on the 1st and the 15th of each month, but I've decided instead to put it out every other Monday. That means it'll always come out on a Monday rather than sometimes coming out on a, you know, a Sunday, for example, which was December 1st. So every other Monday, starting with this episode, so two Mondays from now, there'll be another episode. Thank you to the following Kickstarter donors who helped make this season possible. Alan Catlin, Michael Wright, David Bruce, Ken Smoker, Jeffrey Hessler, Nico Sofiato, Josh Deutsch, Michael, no last name, Russ Kaplan, Bill Thompson, Allison Wedding, Sandra Beasley, Rome Chelly, Wayne Perkins, Lars Johansson, Bruce Barth, Matthias Nieracker, Ken Cook, Brian Jones, Vince Baker, Alan Casline, Al Bunshaft, Linda Messina-Holda, and Brenda Stokes. More names on the next episode. Remember, for $5 a month, you get MP3s and other exclusive content. You get two MP3s per show, including one by the artist who's on that show. For example, today, one by Jeff Letterer. If you're a Kickstarter donor, you just use the same password that you had during the campaign, and there are new MP3s up with every single show, including this one. If you're a new member, you'll get a username and password in the mail when you join. And thank you to Harry Weinberg, who has become a member since the last episode. A note that I'm going to take all of the existing MP3s down at the end of this year, and in fact, at the end of every quarter. So you'll have three months to get the MP3s, and then they'll go down and new ones will be put up there. And the reason for that is that, you know, someone who joins a year from now shouldn't get all the same mp3s that everybody who's been supporting in that time has been getting so every quarter i'll take down that quarter's mp3s and put up the new batch so if you are either a kickstarter backer or if you are if you have been a member already or you join now you have until december 31st to get all the mp3s that are up there now and there's more than a dozen at this point so you want to hop in there if you've lost your password or anything like that just send me an email at jason at the jazz session.com and i will be happy to get you a new one To become a member for $5 a month, visit thejazzsession.com slash join. This is the seventh year of the Jazz Session, and in those seven years, it has never been mentioned ever in any awards category for anything by any publication. Uh, Not in the Jazz Journal Association, not in any other of the jazz magazines, no place. Until now. The Jazz Times annual readers poll is out now, and you can vote for the jazz session in that poll. If you're interested in voting in the entire poll, of course, please do that. Otherwise, you can skip ahead to page 9 and vote for the jazz session and then click through to the end, which I think is page 25, and just submit. Uh, it takes about two seconds. There's a link to the poll in the notes for this episode, and please do go vote since the jazz session is finally mentioned in something. Let's, let's win the thing. Speaking of voting for the show, please rate the show in iTunes if that's how you listen. Or even if not, just go to iTunes, find The Jazz Session, and give it a high star rating and a review. That just helps it move up in the rankings, and it makes it easier for people to find. Also, please do comment on this show. Go to the show notes for this show at thejazzsession.com and leave a comment. Let me know what you think. And if those comments are directed at the artist, I pass them along to the artist, too. Jeff Letterer has a a curiously named band called The Swingin' Dicks, which is actually a revival of a band that he had years and years ago. I had a a wonderful chance to spend some time with him in Brooklyn in the fall and really, really enjoyed my conversation with Jeff and, as it turns out, with his dog. Uh, You'll hear more about that coming up in the episode. First, some music from Jeff Letterer and The Swingin' Dicks. Guest is Jeff Letterer. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here.
3: Hey, Jason, it's great to be with you.
2: So you have a new record uh, <laughs> with a band, and I should <laughs> say, I, when I was in college, I had a band called the Pre-Flattened Cats, and so nice. I have, I feel like I have just a tiny bit. Of possibly unfortunate naming affinity with your band, The Swingin' Dicks. Yeah. Um, which dates back even farther than that, as I understand, right?
3: Yeah, actually this this iteration of The Swingin' Dicks, my current project, uh, is uh based on an actual band called The Swing and Dicks, which I had in high school, and that was our our Dixieland band. And it was kind of my entry point into the world of jazz and improvised music, and it was a great band. As a matter of fact, here we are in my studio. I'm looking at a, a photograph of the original band and the guest artist that evening. Evening in 1976 was Lawrence Welk. Uh, who that was actually amazing. quite swinging on the accordion. He played Honeysuckle Rose with us that night, <laughs> which was great. That's why uh, we, we do Honeysuckle Rose as the first cut on the and Dicks record.
2: And that's the only tune from the old band book that's on the new record, that, is that right? It yeah.
3: is, and I have the old band book here in my files, and, and I cherish it dearly. But we just did Honeysuckle <laughs> Rose and did some new material on the new version of the and Dicks. And uh, the band in high school was called the and Dicks, and we traveled around California. We played trad jazz. Conventions and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, it was a great experience and a great entry point into jazz. When we did those gigs at the conventions, it was largely like old white people at the conventions. And, uh, we had a couple of pseudonyms if the name Swing and Dicks wasn't going to work. So we had, uh, the Dixie Kings was one of the names. Nice. Uh, let's see, Bourbon Street Combo. We, <laughs> we had a very many <laughs> pseudonyms, but the, uh, name of the band for us was the Swing and Dicks. So I thought I'd bring it back for this project.
2: And we should point out, for people who are just hearing this and not seeing that it's it's swing the letter n and then dix as in dixieland it's not quite as blatant as swinging and dicks
3: absolutely yeah and it's classy yeah (laughs) no no it's very classy um from stage i often will just announce it as the my swing and dixieland band and you know depending on the audience members who's out there my my desire is not to offend anyone but i mean i already i have this other group called the shakers in bakers so i'm kind of fond of that n apostrophe i can't get away from it i don't know why so swing and dicks
2: before we talk about the the current album just you said something that I thought was really interesting, uh, I guess that I read somewhere, about how entering jazz through the the trad jazz world, for want of a better term, in many ways put you more in contact with collective improvisation than entering it through other genres that you might have gone through at the time, like the big band world or... Uh, even the small combo world that trad jazz had a lot of collective improvisation in it could you say something about that and
3: yeah clearly there's a super strong connection between the world of traditional jazz and kind of you know the world of more open-ended improvisation which is what I've been doing for the last you know 25 30 years and uh, it has uh, a lot to do with like I said the collective improvisation it also has a lot to do with the focus in traditional jazz on the melody rather than the chord changes of a song so in my original swing and Dixieland book From my high school band Basically I I primarily have melodies Sketched out There's a whole lot in there In terms of chord changes And when you blow You kind of blow the tune And then whatever direction You want to go on that tune And I really love playing that way It's kind of the way that that i and a lot of my colleagues play now so yeah there's a super strong connection that kind of bypasses this world of uh one of my least favorite terms so-called mainstream jazz often ends up being like four guys with their heads buried in a uh in a in a bunch of chord changes and i wanted to really avoid that so so that's how that connection gets made
2: so um, since this is your first time on the show, uh, I figure we'll throw in a little bit of biographical information as well as talking about the new record. Can you talk about how you got interested in that kind of music? Where did you first hear it and how did you decide, oh, I'd like to take a shot at having a band like this?
3: Um, I'm sorry, you're talking about the trag jazz? Yeah, or? Yeah. yeah, oh, sure. Um, really, it was through this band in high school, and my best buddy was, uh, I like to mention his name. He's no longer with us on, on this planet. His name's Jeff Walker. He was a young clarinetist, and me and him met at, uh, age sixteen, seventeen, And we were, uh, he was kind of, uh, way into Benny Goodman. And I was so the progressive one. I was into Charlie Parker at the time. But he kind of drew me back into those earlier things and Sidney Bechet and all. Um So that's how that started. And like I said, our focus was was on the vibe and melodies. And never, ever did we discuss the concept of forms of songs or chord changes. It was always just a tune that existed. And then what you would do afterwards is just play on the tune. And that's how we played this mute, that's how we played jazz. And that's the way I still, still like to play jazz.
2: And Jeff is the person the record is dedicated to, right?
3: It is. Yeah. Very fondly to his memory. And like I said, a really a promising young african-american clarinetist at a time when uh there weren't a lot of young musicians really into the tradition and uh he was really taking the the world by storm so what happened was uh at uh, senior year of high school the band auditioned for a job at disneyland we were we're in los angeles so we auditioned for a gig at disneyland uh disneyland loved us but they said there's no room for us at disneyland but there was an opening for the band at disney world florida so the band took the gig and i had to make a decision whether i'm going to go with the dixieland band of florida Or was I going to start college? And I chose the college path. It's kind of like the game of life. (laughs) So it was Oberlin over Orlando, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) I picked Oberlin, which was like like in the game of life. Pay $50,000, you're going to college. (laughs) The rest of the cats went to Disney World. They started making money. Jeez, what was I thinking? (laughs) But anyway, so they played that gig at, uh, at Disney World, Florida for a couple of years. But you know, I, that lifestyle of being an employee of Disney can be very, very regimented. It went very badly for some of the cats and, um, the band ended up kind of breaking up. And there was, there was some really unfortunate stories that came out of that experience. And one of them was Jeff's story. And so he actually, he passed at a very young age from, you know, some unhealthy lifestyle stuff. Sure. Um, but, uh, But the record is fondly dedicated to him.
2: Jump out of the past after one more question, which was talk about the kind of places that the original formation of the band played.
3: Um, it was primarily at these conventions, which would take place in Southern California, actually all over the state of California, in hotel ballrooms, which was just a bizarre experience of, of getting into this world of jazz, you know? I can still smell the, the, Lure curtains in these places <laughs> And like I said, the audience was was You know, older folks And there were a lot of bands with ruffled shirts And bow ties in the whole scene And we didn't really go for the ruffled shirt Bow tie thing, but we had some little outfits to wear um, But we were the only Young people playing the music So we actually drew quite a bit of attention that way And got a little article in Variety magazine And it was pretty exciting It was kind of like all showbiz, Jason <laughs> So what made you uh bring this band back
2: in a manner of speaking? I mean it's of course different personnel, but what made you revive this concept now?
3: Well, so it's it's kind of a there was a significant age number from birthday that I had recently and so I think I was on a bit of a nostalgia tip. Well, the
2: 21st birthday is Yeah, it's know, a it's big it's one. No, for a lot no, of people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can give me a lot now. of credit. Come on, let's yes. be honest,
3: it's 30. It's 30. <laughs> exactly, fine. Uh, a little bit more than that. But anyway, um so there was a little nostalgia tip going on in my mind. And also, um, you know, given, uh, as you well know, you grow through uh, life and children and uh, making a living and all, there's a, a lot swirling around. And what I wanted to do was go back and kind of touch that amazing first experience with music that caused this just these bubbles to pop off in my head and, and, you know, not just the Lawrence Welk bubbles, but kind of just this excitement about the music. And I kind of thought back to how it felt when I was 16 and playing with the swing and dicks and it was just bubbles popping all over. Like the excitement was out of control. And of course I still feel that. And I've collaborated with all uh, wonderful artists and and been so, so lucky to play the music I've played um for the last 25 years here in New York, but I wanted to kind of try to connect with what was that first experience like outside of um the complicated music, outside of a lot of composition, um, outside of a lot of pre-planning of an event, just what is it that was going off in my head at that time? And so I tried to create some frameworks in this album that I could re-experience some of that, and it really worked for me, you know, and I think for the Cats, it was just very fresh and, and pretty new. So... Uh, the project is – it's definitely not a scholarly look at trad jazz and it's not uh, a jokey look at trad jazz. It's just trying to recapture my first experiences with the music and what that magic was.
2: So can you talk about going back to this music after uh, you know 25, 30-year career as a musician exploring many different territories in improvised music? Once you kind of tried to recapture this music, how did it – how was it different? How was the experience of playing this music different from when you first played it? Was it different?
3: I kind of say it's not really tremendously different except for the freedom that's available in this kind of structure. And when I say this kind of structure, like for musicians who might be listening, I'm talking about like really extended passages of just dominant seventh chords sitting there without a two, five, one, or without a lot of extensions, just a beautiful dominant chord sitting there for maybe eight bars, which is a frequent structure in some of these trad jazz tunes. Um, it's the freedom that that allows. And maybe when I was younger, I didn't realize that that was called freedom. And now some 30 years later, I'm like, Oh, that's freedom. That's blowing without restrictions. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. Also, I mean, I love, I love music with complexity and I love notating music. I love playing complicated music. But for this project, it, I wanted to re-experience that feeling of freedom in that way. And so, what kind of charts,
2: if any, did you bring into these sessions?
3: Um, well, I was really tempted just to bring in the original musty charts from the, <laughs> from the high school band. And that was, that was a concept. I think the first time I tried this out at, at home here, it was, uh, just inviting some cats to play that book. But I ended up with some other, with some other vibes. So I decided we were going to go with, like, actual repertoire on the record is really only, uh, a couple of things, uh, Honeysuckle Rose, a great Pee Wee Russell tune, Pee Wee's Blues. But then, we started uh, developing some new songs that had some of that same formula to it. Um, so I wrote a couple of things. Uh, Kirk Kanufke, the cornetist, wrote a couple of, of open-ended things. And Matt Wilson made a great contribution with his song Nibble. And, and so we kind of went from there.
2: you've uh, mentioned the band, but talk about the band on this record and
1: yeah,
3: sure. So the band is a beautiful collection of friends. Um, as I said, uh, my colleague, Kirk Kanufke on Coronet, uh, my ol- old dear friend, Matt Wilson on the drums, and my new dear friend, Bob Stewart on the tuba. And getting to uh, develop this music with Bob was a treat, a thrill. It's just been fantastic. Bob's a beautiful, wonderful musician, as your listeners know, and a wonderful open spirit and, and really ready to jump in there and have some fun. And Bob is
2: someone I know that you had been listening to for a long time, but you were kind of brought together in an interesting way. Can you talk about both those things where you first heard Bob's playing and then how you guys got together recently in New York?
3: yeah sure so my major experience of Bob Stewart's playing is primarily from the Arthur Blythe recordings and particularly the seminal recording for me Lennox Avenue Breakdown great great record which I got just at the right time in life Um and that would be I don't know maybe I was 18 or 19 and hearing that music I was 18 or 19 because me and the drummer Jerry Gibbs were playing a lot of that time we had a kid band another different kid band in LA and we tried to play all the tunes from that record so love Lennox Avenue Breakdown love Arthur And love Bob Stewart. So that was my first experience of Bob's playing. Of course, he's done so many great things over the years. Um, And we got teamed together via Search and Restore concert uh, in, I wish I could come up with the year, must have been two years ago at 92nd Street Y Tribeca. Um, So they present a series of concerts called Round Robins, where improvisers are put together in pairs. And, uh, I got the lucky card because I, I heard I was going to play with Bob Stewart and I was like, yes, (laughs) insert hand gesture here. Yes.
2: So is there something different about having a tuba holding down the bass part as opposed to a bass, the more traditional
3: instrument? Yeah, certainly. There's a, it's a whole different sound world with the tuba. And of course that depends on, on the musician. And there now we can say in part due to Bob's legacy, there are many, many great tubists out there. Tubaists, tubists. Did I do that right? I
2: think it's tubists, but I I wouldn't bet a ton of money on it. But that sounds right to me.
3: Yeah. No. Let's let's go with tubists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, my dog is growling, no, but that's okay. That's totally I think he's. Fine. I think my dog Albert Eiler is going with tubaists. Yeah, he's but, he is far from
2: the first dog on the jazz session. That's for sure, and he, he's. Also named Albert Eiler, so he can talk anytime he wants
3: to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, the, the sound world of the tuba, first of all, the, where the vibration comes from is very, very different. And when I got on stage with Bob at, uh, at 92nd Street Y, the, I was just amazed with the sound feeling of swiftness. No! St- do you think we need to do a pause? <laughs> I think. We, I think.
2: Unless I mean, if if there's something you need to do, so
3: <laughs> to ma- I can actually kick him out. Sure, that's fine. I think that would work rather than you wow. having to We're edit a lot. We're kicking
2: Albert Eiler off the jazz session. Albert, this is a low, a low, yeah, moment, okay. a low moment. in the show. Let's do this,
3: Albert. Albert, come on, you're out. You're ladies, out, buddy.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Albert Eiler is leaving the building. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous, yeah, okay, great, well, maybe you can use some of that <laughs> yes i oh oh, you i'm will. editing out none of that, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I might use only that Yeah, right, okay, uh, so you're talking about where the sound world where
3: yeah the... yeah, so I mean when I started playing with Bob on stage, we of course, with these round robins, you don't prepare anything, you don't play in advance, and the idea is two musicians who hadn't played together before um. So it was, it was kind of like just putting my foot into a beautiful warm hot tub because I just felt surrounded by warmth playing inside his sound. And the sound with the tuba, it doesn't really emanate from the bell of the horn. It just kind of spreads out in the circular pattern. That's just, it's a delight to be in that beautiful pool of sound. And of course with the bassist, um, I feel, uh, with most basses, that the sound can come from different areas, sound holes, uh, wherever it comes from. But it can be a much more pointed thing, which is also great. But with the tuba, I do feel like I'm kind of swimming in the sound, which is a wonderful feeling.
2: Yeah. And there, listening to the record, there seems to be something for me about the way the rhythms are delivered by the tuba too, something that's less, maybe it's less attack heavy. It's a little more like a thud and less like a punch or something like that i don't know if i'm saying that right oh
3: no you've got that you're right on jason because um i think there's a thing with bassists and drummers uh with the ride cymbal and the bass and you know they get very brolic the bass player and the drummer about putting the the tip on it and putting the sound right at the point together on the ride cymbal and the attack on the bass what i find with matt and bob is as you said the the attack can be it can be a a pointed attack, but more often it can be kind of this warm envelope of sound. Or, I mean, there's a million different ways Bob has of starting a note. I think that's one of the fascinating things is, you know, clearly he can use his articulation and his tongue to start notes in a very pointed way, but he has many, many different ways of starting and stopping notes. And I think having that variety of sound available is really cool. And it gives the swing on this feel in this record a really different feeling uh, than when I'm playing with Matt and any number of great bassists, you know, primarily Chris Leikap that we play with, um, it's a different feeling when I'm playing for with Bob and Matt for sure. <laughs>
2: People who have heard this show before know that uh, finding joy in music is a, a huge thing for me, and this this album just seems to be brimming with it. I mean, there's actual moments when people are just laughing on the record, which I think is great. Um, yeah. But the whole record, even even the parts where you don't hear you guys talk, it, it feels like we are listening to you, just having a really spirited conversation during the entire album, I think. It, I, I hope that, is that what the session was like? Is that what the was intended to happen?
3: It, yeah, it certainly is what it felt like, and it was a, quite a short session. We made the record, as many of your artists that are on sure. the show do, made the session in four and a half, five hours and not extensive rehearsal and fortunately the music didn't require that and it was just it really was joyful to make this record and a lot of fun and there's a little laughing left on the record primarily because there was that much laughing going on in the studio as a matter of fact on the first song we recorded was honeysuckle rose and there's a portion of the song where where the vibe kind of breaks down and bob Completely unplanned, just starts in a different groove, doing just a beautiful funky thing, and it was so deep. I, I this is just between you and me, Jason. The vibe was so deep that I I had to remove my shirt. So <laughs> I removed my shirt in the studio and and started dancing. At which point, Bob Stewart kind of looked at me like, Jeez, what did I get myself involved in?" <laughs>
2: Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Well, good. I'll feel less self-conscious when I, as I traditionally do, take off my clothes halfway through the interview then. Bob. I've so, heard about you know, that, Jason. I'm yes. looking forward to that <laughs> that's part. Why, <laughs> that's why people never invite me back twice. Yeah. Was there anything that you had to say to uh, either Kirk or to Matt uh, or to Bob about the what the trad, trad jazz feel or the, the feel in general that you were going for was about? I really don't know anything about the three of them and what experience they might have in that world and whether there was anything you felt – needed to be said about what it, you wanted it to feel like.
3: Yeah, so there are guys um, in town, in New York, and, well, of course, all around the world who are real trad jazz guys. By the way, we are not real trad ga- jazz guys in case anyone had any doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and I have played with a few of them, including, you know, some years with Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks, which is a swingin' band. And... Uh, Wow. Me and Matt, when we were in, we were in Melbourne, Australia. No, Sydney. And we met a drummer out there named Lynn. I can't remember his last name now. I'm sorry, but he's a trad jazz drummer. And me and Matt went every night, every possible moment we had off to go sit and listen to Lynn play. Because he just had a vibe on his kit that was so deep in that world, and Matt just loved it. So I know how much Matt loves that sound world, um, but he's, I also know about Matt that he's going to take that sound world and make it distinctly Matt Wilson, which he does. He, did, he brought a particular piece of equipment to the session. He brought a different snare than he normally plays, which has a beautiful sound not like an quote air quote authentic oh trad jazz sound but it was the right sound for that record and of course he picks his symbols according to what's happening on each session mm. and he brought a beautiful splash symbol for this record um Kurt kanufki is a coronetist that's the only instrument he's playing these days no trumpet and he uh has many many deep roots in that world he doesn't again doesn't play trad jazz i don't know if there's a I don't think there's ever been a time in his life when he, when he really played in those kinds of groups, but it, the sound print is all over his sound. And his main man these days for that is Henry Red Allen. He's mm. just way up in that. As a matter of fact, Kirk also turned me on recently to the amazing Al Hurt. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, I, of course I knew he was a great trumpet player, but until Kirk kind of pointed me to certain things, I was like, Holy cow, Al Hurt was a tremendous musician. Yeah, the very
2: first concert I ever went to with my grandfather um, probably in the early 80s was Pete Fountain and Al Hurt. Yeah. and Oh, no. Yeah, that it, started my love for that kind of music right there. Yeah, it's
3: beautiful. And, you know, as long as we're talking about the trad jazz thing, of course, there's the original wave of guys and, you know, the heroes of that music and Bechet and all that. But there's the whole second wave of moldy figs that came up in the 50s. Right. And in that group, it includes, you know, Pee Wee Russell and, you know, some guys that I really love. And I... I I actually love that group of musicians as well. And the one person that I played with quite a bit in New York with that is a clarinetist uh named Saul Yeagin, who's more of a swing musician and a, a kind of a guy who emulated, yeah, you know, um, Saul's still around, he's still playing like four nights a week in New York, a uh, great great clarinetist. He kind of emulated the Benny Goodman sound okay uh, to such extent that he used to follow Benny around town, and I guess Benny got annoyed at that after a while. <laughs> he was like, "Saul, give me some room to breathe, will you?" Benny didn't mix words. Benny was pretty straight <laughs> yeah, shooter. Just fixed you
2: with the ray, and that was it, right? Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. But uh, Saul's a beautiful cat, and there's a, a song on this record called uh, I'll Take a Dozen, which is dedicated to Saul. And I had the good fortune of playing with Saul many, many nights when I first came to New York, and uh, we had a, a beautiful little band that was kind of – had a vibration of like a, an Ellington small group and um, – Just really great. And I learned a lot from Saul, not only about, about the music, but really about the, about the style of band leading. So I'll take a dozen comes from a phrase Saul would say if on the microphone, if you took a good solo, he'd go right to the microphone, just shout on the microphone. I'll take a dozen. Then he would go back to the bandstand and reach in the pocket uh, filled with lint and other papers in his suit pocket. And he'd grab a little small mint and he would hand it to you after your solo. I think he still oh, does fabulous. that. God bless you, Saul.
2: <laughs> you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about, uh, and I'm and obviously I'm sure you're editing out things, but to hear that you talk about the way you came up in music, uh, you know, coming through this world of uh, trad jazz, at least partly, and then playing some kind of traditional small group swing stuff, at least partly. And then to get to where you got to, or you know, where I think of you when I think of you, which is on the much more, uh, you know, kind of open-ended left of center, for lack of a better crappy term side of the world um was there was there some moment in there where you consciously started to depart from these things that had been in your past or have you just not told me that these things were also in your past and going well, at the same time
3: yeah i mean there was there was to be honest with you it wasn't really like i made this did this trad jazz thing and then instantly started playing free right i mean there was a, a historical progression and i played uh, you know Age eighteen, nineteen. I, I started that sounding like Bird and I was playing alto at the time and I, and I did that and I kind of historically went through the music and, and played a whole lot of mess of bebop and all that stuff, you know. Um, so I think it's, it's nice for me with this one that it feels pretty, uh, circular that I'm making kind of connecting the dots here with where it started and where I ended up. Um, it wasn't a conscious process. But it is kind of what happened and it's, it's nice now. I mean, when I'm playing with Kirk or Matt or Bob, um, or any number of wonderful musicians that I get to play with. Um, of course, we never think in terms of, oh, are we doing trad? Are we doing out? Are we doing in? We, we never think. Nobody thinks that sure. way anymore. And that's just an amazing thing. And 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. You know, there'd be all kinds of vibes about, hey, you're playing inside, you're playing outside. I'm sure a lot of your guests say the same thing. It's a beautiful thing now that that we don't make those distinctions. It's really it's really magical. And I meet young musicians, not all the time, but, you know, I'm in schools a lot, and it's a like to meet young musicians now who are thinking that way from the beginning and it's a really beautiful thing so i can play a young musician an excerpt of sydney bechet and in the next moment play them an excerpt of albert eiler and those two figures are to me intimately connected and they see that connection they don't see the you know so-called disparity among those two schools of thought
2: so you obviously have a dog named albert eiler we're <laughs> sitting in a room covered in uh pictures of albert eiler at- what can you talk about that moment when Albert Adler came into your life? The music of Albert Adler, if
3: you remember. Yeah, you kind of, um, while uh, well, quite a young musician, age twenty or so, uh, I came across Love Cry, and that album is still to me just. You know, it, it kind of affects me every day. And that's the album that really just opened everything up for me. I love Albert dearly. I love his legacy. I love his music. I've done a number of projects around his spirit. I don't like to play his songs that much because it gets difficult for me. It ends up feeling like uh, some kind of, uh, fetishism, you know, um, I'll leave that to other people, but the spirit of Albert inflects my thinking about music every day, and I think it's the directness and the melodicism in Albert's music, um, which is maybe not the first thing people think of when they when they think of Albert Eiler's playing. But for me, it's all beautiful, melodic music. Um, me and Matt are kind of connected with that Love Cry experience, because he heard that album very early on, and he... Uh, he told me when we were i think at our first or second meeting he said oh yeah love cry he says it all sounds like sea shanties to me and i'm like yeah you know it sounds like just ancient beautiful melodies and in fact i'm i'm fielding a band next week for the first time a new group called drunken sailor um that is playing sea shanties and some albert Eilertons. so oh <laughs> fabulous <laughs> yeah yeah,
2: you're particularly good at naming bands I
3: yeah i do come <laughs> up with names <laughs> kind of comes around to bite me in in the rear end sometimes i'm not quite sure how far the swing and dicks are gone. i don't think i'll be able to uh show up at certain jazz festivals with the swing and dicks title but we'll see how it goes yeah
2: exactly um this uh, swing and dicks record is out on your own label and it's not the only thing that's out now on this label Will you talk about uh, the other release
3: yeah um, my my own label is called Little Eye Music, and uh, I did a number of releases with my group The Shakers and Bakers on Little Eye Music. Uh, there was a release called The Blue Guitar featuring Mary LaRose, vocalist, and my better half with Mark Rebo and Stephen Bernstein. Uh, it's a great album, i got to say. Um, then I, I started working with other labels for a while and did have done a number of releases with different labels. And now for these two, uh, I have two new projects, The Swingin' Dicks and a new album of Mary's, which is called Reincarnation with string quartet and I'm doing these two on my own label. Uh, little I is a phrase that comes from shaker poetry and it kind of speaks about uh, humility, which is quite ironic because I find myself in the position these days of just having to tell everyone how great little I music is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, again, with the naming, it comes around to get you. But uh, so that's what we're doing. And for the future, I'm, I'm looking forward to basically I uh, I'm going to, be releasing music, my own, use it as a channel for my own music and some of the folks in my family of musicians, which you see on these two releases. And, uh, and that's where I'm going from here with it.
2: And I really, the repertoire on Mary's record is right up my alley. We talk about what some of that is.
3: Uh, Sure, so we, on Reincarnation, Mary's release We're doing uh, a lot of compositions of Charles Mingus, Eric Dolphy, Ornette Coleman And Mary is uh, a jazz vocalist who kind of extends the vocalist tradition Into some of the language of po- post-bop music Probably with a little uh, push from me Because <laughs> she was uh, writing, you know lyrics uh to all kinds of tunes and I was like hey here's an Anthony Braxton tune that sounds like that could use a lyric <laughs> and she's actually done some of Braxton's music so on this release uh, like I said there's Dolphy and Mingus and Ornette and Albert Eiler which she sings wordlessly and uh it just seems to me that the world of the jazz vocal they're Many, many wonderful singers out there, vocalists I love, and, and it's moving forward in all kinds of unexpected and wonderful ways. But for the broad public vision of what a jazz singer is, and particularly what a female jazz singer is, it still seems to be rooted in this kind of torch song thing, and, oh, you should be sexy. Well, Mary is sexy, but, uh, uh, but, you know, kind of just rooted in this very old-fashioned notion of what a jazz singer is. And so I, I love the ways that she's dealing with this new repertoire in challenging ways. and that's, So that's what she's doing on Reincarnation. And that record I've set with uh, String Quartet, um, some dear friends who are also make up the String Quartet Brooklyn Rider, which is uh, doing some wonderful things in classical and new music. And we were fortunate to collaborate with, with those folks. <laughs>
2: seem to me like a person who is always looking for some new thing to be doing not not as a novelty but because of a genuine interest in finding out where else you can put your sound and your musical
3: talents is that a fair assessment of you yeah i think it is and you know maybe maybe that's not always to my benefit to be honest but i do always seem to be looking into new things particularly as a uh, you know as an arranger and i do a lot of arranging projects um but I find myself going into different areas all the time, and I have a, a more, more or less, quote unquote, normal jazz quartet—piano, bass, and drums—which is Sunwatcher with uh, Buster Williams, Jamie Saft, and Matt Wilson—and that's a, a you know a, a great avenue for me to play jazz music, but. I do, I think I have an arrangerly mindset, so I'm oftentimes thinking of new instrumental combinations, and, uh, and I want to explore those. And also, I also have a bent towards historical repertoire and things that are just kind of mixing up different cultural worlds. Um, So I had one orchestra project in which I put a 10-piece salsa band from New York side-by-side with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I I like to mix it up, Jason. I (laughs) I like to mix it up. Sometimes I think to myself, wow, it might have been different for me if I had just kept one band. Like, you know, some band leaders have just kept a band for 20 years and it just gets deeper and deeper. And for that, I mean, I have Matt Wilson Quartet, which is an amazing thing to play with pe- people for decades. And the music just gets that much deeper. But I do tend for my own projects to explore in different contexts. Will you talk
2: about yourself as an arranger?
3: Um, sure. And I, I do think of myself primarily as an arranger rather than a composer. And I say that proudly. I, I hear things and then I imagine them in new contexts. And I do think that's kind of an area of interest of mine and maybe a strength of mine. Um, uh, I have (laughs) there's a, a project I just did a producing arranging project for the great baritone saxophonist Gary Simoleon and I think that'll be coming out this month October on Capri Records and in that one we did the music uh Napoli, of Naples, Italy and uh, it just turned out really wonderfully I did the, you know, the arranging on it um, and the singer on the record is Uncle Junior, Dominic Chianese, who plays Uncle Junior on yeah. The Sopranos and he was really beautiful on the record so I get a thrill out of taking music and putting it into new contexts with new personalities and see what they have to offer to it And uh, also, you know, I have many, many large-scale classical works that are in the cabinets here in the studio. They'll probably never be heard, but I, I do love to write, and I love to imagine new things.
2: You know, I remember someone saying on this show, um I think it was the singer Nikki Shiro who said that there's such a focus these days on people producing original music and uh, she was saying she thought maybe there was even too much of a focus on it and that she recommended that people also try to work on their arranging skills and take, you know, take melodies they already knew they enjoyed but find interesting new ways and new contexts to put them in. And she said that she felt like that was an equally valid way to express yourself and who you are as a musician, not just having to create from scratch necessarily all the time.
3: Yeah, sure. And that, of course, that's a huge part of our music. That's the history of our music. And if you look at undergraduate jazz departments now, uh, I meet young musicians who are primarily focusing on playing their own music, which is a beautiful thing. And of course, that's what we've kind of wanted all along, you know, is to be playing our own music. But I have to say... There's something lost in that if you're not also playing some repertoire and developing how you sound inside repertoire. It's it's a really a very different perspective. And I think it's a hugely valuable perspective.
2: And are you using the word repertoire in a in a fairly broad way to encompass most of what's gone before, not just a For particular sure. thing? I've For been. sure.
3: I mean I mean I'm including Classic jazz compositions, standards, um, and other types of musical repertoire that's out there. So, you know, for me, I connected in a very long and strange way with the music of the Shakers, the religious group, of the Shakers. And I won't get into that story here, <laughs> but I mean, that, that music spoke to me, and I wanted to find out what it would be like for me to play through that body of music. And that, and it has ended up being a very long and fulfilling project for me.
2: Well, you've made you've made two mistakes right there because first of all, you're talking to a kid who grew up in Berkshire County, so oh. um, <clears throat> so if you're gonna say if you're gonna invoke the Shakers yeah. and then say and it's a long, strange story that I won't get into to a person who interviews people for a living, yeah, I mean, I'm if if you really do want to not talk about it at all, then I'll edit this whole part out. But it sounds like it would be a fascinating story if you want to talk about it at all.
3: Well, sure, no, I me not talk about the Shakers. <laughs> I love talking about the Shakers. I've done. You know, many, many programs just talking about the Shakers. As a matter of fact, uh, Matt Wilson's very active in his church in Long Island, and the church invited me out there for what they call an adult forum, where we talk about different things, and, uh, I gave a kind of a lecture on Shakerism to his Presbyterian church in Long <laughs> Island, which was great. They were very, uh, you know, very uh, open-minded until I started talking about some of the more odd aspects of Shakerism, and then they got a kind of dazed look in their right. face. <laughs> Anyway, so the, the Shaper, Shakers were a utopian community that was founded in England, moved to the United States in 1774, and uh, they were an ecstatic group. They had these amazing worship services. Uh, they lived in uh Basically, communistic societies in starting in upstate New York, expanding throughout America, uh, throughout New England and even as far west as Kentucky during the mid 19th century and peaking at about 5,000 members. Uh, and then it dwindled after that. And one of the reasons perhaps it dwindled is because the first rule of being a shaker is to be completely celibate. So there's not a really great <laughs> growth perspective there. <laughs> But uh, but I, I became interested in Shakerism just through a, a particular piece of contemporary music by the composer John Adams, which is Shaker Loops, which is sure. a seminal piece and a, a wonderful piece. Uh, but whereas everybody else just recognized that that he was just doing a piece inspired by the feeling uh, of sh- experience of Shakers that he had growing up in New Hampshire, I decided, well, I really want to find out about this piece and I want to find out about traditional Shaker music. I found out quite quite rapidly that John Adams didn't really base anything in that piece on traditional shaker music. But when I went uh actually started a Brooklyn public library and found a volume of shaker tunes, and uh, there were many, many tunes that looked like, typical Protestant hymns. But then in the back of the book, there was some songs that were called the gift songs or the vision songs. And these songs were all in mixed meters and changing modalities. And most most curious of all, they were not in English. They were in languages of inspired inspiration or, uh, you know, speaking in tongues, really. Um and I was like, wow, this looks just like Bebop to me. So I started exploring that body of music and I, I formed my group Shakers and Bakers to kind of experiment with that. And that's turned into a decade long project. And uh, you know, eventually uh it it became uh well uh <laughs> uh let's just say um I ended up wearing a dress on most of the gigs and, and it became quite a performance piece and we we love doing it.
2: That's great. Uh, and I'll just say to, uh, to people just speaking on my own behalf that I've visited most of the Shaker communities except the ones in Kentucky, um and I just – I find them incredibly fascinating. So I, I highly recommend that folks check them out. And if you live anywhere in the northern – Northeastern part of the U.S., it's you're pretty close to a Shaker community, and
3: it's Absolutely. worth going to see. Absolutely beautiful. I, I'm so glad to hear that from you. So if you're anywhere near Hancock, Massachusetts, or Canterbury, New Hampshire, or there's a small community. The original community, in America, is in in Albany, mm-hmm. right across the street from the Albany Airport. I was there recently, and uh, it's a, a beautiful collection of buildings. And the Shakers are just remarkable for for their architecture, for their handicrafts, for their music, but primarily for their vision of of a, lo- a different kind of life a utopian life and it was amazing and it was a huge success um some people say well the shakers died out they didn't actually there are four living shakers in a small farm in maine um but i think the whole experiment was a huge success and and a total inspiration to me
2: and uh we well this would be fascinating to keep talking about also but uh they were not uh anti-technological for example it's not we're not talking about uh an analog to the Amish people or something like that. The, right. That's, which I think everybody just kind of groups all of these communities into one concept and Shakers were very different.
3: Yeah, sure. So there were many, many utopian communities that founded in, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, but the Shakers, as you said, they were a very progressive community, uh, progressive in their use of technology. They invented the circular saw. They invented the clothespin. They invented the flat broom, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> These people were ahead of their time. <laughs> but, uh, no, and, uh, and they were also progressive in other ways in terms of their view of, uh, dividing, uh, um, political and social power among men and women equally. In fact, uh, it was almost a matriarchal society. Most of the most important leaders of the Shakers in America were women. And also in terms of, um, welcoming people of color, uh, they were far ahead of their time. Uh, very socially progressive.
2: We're uh, we're approaching the end here, but uh, I've always been curious about how you and Matt Wilson actually met. Can you talk about that story?
3: Uh, yeah, it really, we met in a rehearsal big band in Brooklyn, you know, and, uh, when we had both just arrived in New York. And, you know, we, I think we did one rehearsal and then we, we got together one more time to do something else. And at that point we started talking about Albert Eiler Love Cry. And so I invited Matt to come on a gig, uh, shortly after that. And we, I called one of Albert's tunes Universal Indians, which is a beautiful little two note tune that Albert wrote. And, Without any discussion of it in advance, uh, Matt immediately started playing it as a surf rock tune. <laughs> and I was like, I want to play music with this guy <laughs> for a long, long time. And the miracle is that we've now been playing for a long, long time. Was that in the late 80s? That I would be – or... mi- yeah, about 87. Okay. A- 87, 88. And um, – and 2013, and it's still it's and we're we're still going. We're still going. I, what can I say uh, about Matthew? Matthew is uh, a dear friend, and oh, as as you know, Jason, wonderful human being, and mm-hmm. uh, the way the way he conducts his life, the, his family life, and his music, and it's it's all just really one one thing. And uh, he and I have a connection that's that's really deep and i'm really fortunate to have him as a friend first of all and to play music with him
2: my guest is jeff letterer the new album swing and dicks is on his own little Eye music uh, highly highly recommended as is in my opinion everything else you've been on and it's been such a pleasure to finally uh, get a chance to talk with you and have you on the show thanks for doing it
3: it's been awesome jason thank you so much
2: my
0: home, my sweet home in Zion My call, my holy call How precious to me
3: All the world
2: That's music from Jeff Lederer and Swingin' Dicks. Thank you so much for being here on the Jazz Session. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music, to Dave Rabel for the logo. Don't forget, go to the show notes for this episode at thejazzsession.com. Click on the link to the Jazz Times poll and please vote for the Jazz Session. If you don't want to vote in the entire poll, you can just click through to page 9, vote for the Jazz Session, click through to the end, which I think is page 21 or 25, and submit. If you need a Wikipedia page or a bio or a press release or any other writing done for you, please visit CraneWrites.com for rates and samples. I've done a lot of work for artists that you'll know and probably artists that you play with. And so if you're interested in those services, visit CraneWrites.com and drop me a line. And that's it. Remember, the new show schedule is every other Monday. So two weeks from today, if you're listening to this on December 2nd, there'll be a new episode So until then, have a wonderful couple of weeks and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
0: Everybody. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.